Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Cult I Left Behind podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Briggs, and I'm here to tell you my stories of growing up in the IBLP cult, which you might know from the Duggar family. And I'm your other host, Kyle Briggs. I am Amanda's husband, and I have not heard most of these stories before. So stay tuned, and we'll all get traumatized together. Welcome back to the next episode. Um, I know you've been putting a lot of work into this one. Yeah. Um, and we're, it's the last episode we kind of rolled. We're in college, mm-hmm. right? So what's, what's next? What's next? All right. So this episode, we are going to talk about me reporting my brother and the four years that process took in criminal court. So before we get started, what are you drinking? Because you look, it looks good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the morning right now, so I've got a tequila sunrise. Oh, nice! I I had to stop drinking due to medication, so I'm drinking a diet Dr Pepper, which is weird for this time of the morning. But caffeine, <laughs> <laughs> yes, need the caffeine. Um, for this episode. If there's background noise, it's me shuffling my 15 pages of notes. This is the last episode for the the initial segment on my story, right? And then next week, Mm -hmm. we're going to roll into the next topic. Mm -hmm. So we pick up in 2013, realizing, you know, at this point, I was very solid on the fact that what Andy had done to me was a crime, that Rick and Chris should have done something to mm-hmm. report it and get me help, get him help. As I've previously mentioned, I was denied um, medical care, mental health care, any kind of counseling, just not allowed to talk about it. So they they were legally culpable for hiding a crime and, and protecting a predator. And moving away after healing from PTSD, like I mentioned, I think in the last episode, my ex-husband and I moved across the country. And it was that time living so far away from my biological family that I really began to mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically disentangle myself from them and start to develop my own belief system and identity. And I was in my mid-20s already at this point. So it it was it was a lot. It was a lot to think through. It was a lot to grapple with around spiritual beliefs because at that point I had recognized like, okay, pretty sure I grew up in a cult. Like I think that was a cult. <laughs> this isn't normal. <laughs> yeah. And the the level of control that had been exercised over me by my parents through cult ideology and the whole umbrella of protection and Satan's fiery darts and, you know, making myself susceptible to satanic influence if I didn't do every last thing they said. All of that had really started to crumble for me. And I knew it was not correct at this point in my life. I I phrase it to myself as I had to develop a theology of reporting crimes, which these days I would say there there shouldn't be a theology of reporting crimes. You just report crimes. But back where I was at that time in my life, I was still very much trying to be a good Christian, um, trying to do the right thing, trying to live in a godly and biblical way that was still very influenced by my upbringing as I continued to try to disentangle myself from all of that. And 
that religious manipulation is basically what had kept me quiet for so long because I'd been told God had made Andy better mm-hmm. and that he was okay now. That was the family line. And and they stuck to that even though like it continued. Yeah. Well, they that there was a huge period of time where we didn't talk about any of this. So by the time I started talking about it again in college, mm-hmm. Rick and Chris's line was, well, Andy's like God has fixed Andy. Andy is okay now. Granted, they'd never talked to him about it mm-hmm. <laughs> in all that time. Um, I mean, maybe a small check in here and there, but Rick told me when I had that mental breakdown in college that I talked about in the last episode, he was like, yeah, I guess I haven't checked on Andy. Maybe I should see how he's doing with all of this. And my understanding at the time was that he had not broached the subject with Andy in in years. So Rick and Chris and any of the siblings I spoke with who knew, at that point, everyone except my youngest sister, Abby, knew and had had conversations with Andy about it. They were all towing party line that God had fixed Andy. Now, they couldn't tell me how God had fixed Andy or what evidence they had that Andy was fixed or anything. It was just God has fixed Andy and he is okay now. And I started to realize that that I couldn't just take their word on it. Like, oh, Rick has spoken and Andy is okay now. Like, Andy was a malicious predator and I didn't know if he was still harming people. Mm -hmm. And at that point, my protective instinct kicked in and I was like, well, I need to do this to protect other people. And that's an okay reason to report rape. It is. Uh, Over the next four years, I got to the point where I realized I was worth reporting. Accountability and justice for what had been done to me was worth reporting. And a lovely side benefit of that was I might get to protect other people through my report. So do you think it's easier in general for to take that approach of like, well, I'm just going to do this so that nobody else gets hurt. For my personality, yes. Okay. And I can't speak for everyone who's ever reported a sex crime, but I know a lot of survivors I've personally spoken to have, have talked about like, well, I don't want this to happen to anyone else. Mm -hmm. So it might be, it might be common. That's a good question. I'd have to look into it to give you a really good answer. But in 2013, I stumbled across an interview between um, Rachel Held Evans and this guy whose name I can't pronounce. It's like Boz Chidvidian or something like that. <laughs> okay. Um, so Rachel Held Evans, I realized in researching for this, she actually passed away in 2019, um, from illness and she was kind of a disruptor in the evangelical community. Mm-hmm. She, she grew up in a really fundamentalist Christian background and or environment. And she started challenging and critiquing it as an adult. And and her approach was, you know, she still identified as Christian and everything, but she wanted Christians to do and be better. So she had this, this interview with, with this guy and he's a lawyer and he's one of the founders of an organization called Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment or Grace. And you have to keep in mind at that point in my life, like I was still trying so hard to be like a godly Christian. That was my primary focus. So I really latched on to this article because it it broke down everything I had been told about how to be a good Christian around sex crimes and so a lot of this, like if, if you don't 
believe in Christianity and everything, that's fine. I'm going to read excerpts from this article because that is what I believed at the time. And I think it provides a lot of context for the shift. Like this article changed my life. It changed my trajectory. It is what made me decide to report ultimately. And it, like, I learned so much from it. It was such a pivotal moment. So Boz, we're just going to call him Boz because I can't say his last name. I'm just going to read like bits and pieces of what he said. So he started by, she asked him, um, some churches seem to think that reports of abuse are best handled in-house without contacting authorities. Why is this a mistake? So he responds, hey, we often encounter professing Christians who struggle with whether suspected abuse within the Christian community should be reported to civil authorities. A fundamental question that Christians must confront when processing this issue is whether the church is subject to the laws of civil government. Okay. Yeah, which I had been told in a lot of ways we weren't, you know. Mm -hmm. So regardless of how one sides on this issue, a plain reading of Romans 13, Romans is a book of the Bible in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. Um, so a plain reading of Roman 13, Romans 13 clearly indicates that the civil government plays a role in God's design for society and his people. Many Christians seem to differ on the extent to which Christians are morally obligated to obey civil laws that do not require disobedience to God's law. However, there seems to be a general consensus among Christians that the civil government has a general duty and obligation to establish order within society for the purpose of protecting its citizens from physical harm intentionally inflicted by others. A central purpose of criminal laws is to punish those in society who intentionally commit inherently wrong actions that result in some form of harm to another. Such punishments are a necessary and central ingredient to an orderly and safe society 2013 me, my brain's exploding, trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> if that is the case, can there be any greater responsibility of the civil government than to punish citizens who violate laws designed to protect society's most vulnerable members, children? In order to determine whether such a law has been violated, the civil government must be notified of the alleged defense. Again, brain exploding, 2013 me. Governments are incapable of carrying out this biblical mandate if its citizens fail to report the alleged criminal actions. Therefore, Christians impede this biblical mandate when we fail to report suspected crimes against children to the civil government for investigation and possible prosecution of the offenders, hindering Another from carrying out a biblical mandate is disobedience to God, otherwise known as sin. Oh, and yeah, I was the, like, oh, <laughs> you throw the S word in there. So, so then he, um, I'm skipping a lot of stuff here, but therefore, Christians in the United States have both a biblical and legal mandate to report suspected abuse of children. When they fail to fulfill this mandate, Christians can and should be prosecuted. So I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to Rick and Chris if I move forward with this? Mm-hmm. And everyone else who maybe knew, I don't, I don't, I didn't even know who else might have known. I didn't know if the folks in the cult knew because Andy was sent off to one of the facilities where they informed of what he had done. Was there a big cover up? I don't know. I still don't know, honestly. So Boz says, I've yet to encounter an abuse situation that was handled in-house where the consequences were not extremely harmful to the abuse survivor. All too often, these issues are handled in-house in a church-centered attempt to avoid public scrutiny 
and bring the matter to a close as quickly as possible so that the church can return to more productive gospel work, in quotes. The sooner a church can manipulate some form of reconciliation between the victim and the perpetrator, the sooner it can forget about this messy situation. This is the story of my life being spelled out in print before my eyes. Tragically, this rush to reconciliation will often guilt the victim into thinking the harmful effects of the abuse are a result of his or her own spiritual weakness or failures and that a godly response to abuse, in quotes, requires the embrace of the offender while minimizing the effects of the abuse. Again, story of my life. Not surprisingly, this church-centered response leads to a devastating consequence or it leads to devastating consequences in the life of the abuse survivors such responses to abuse have nothing to do with the gospel and everything to do with placing the institution over the individual and at this point in my life i had emails from my biological father telling me that he did not report my brother because he was trying to first of all protect my brother but also he didn't want to smear the family name And I was forced into rushed reconciliation and literally embracing the offender and going on restitution trips and spending my time with my rapist so that everyone else in the family who knew about it could just forget about it and move on with their lives. So it was so, so validating to see this from a lawyer as well, because if we haven't figured this out about me collectively yet, like I really like my sources <laughs> and my research. So hearing this from a reputable source who could hit like the legal portion and because of where I was in my spiritual journey at that time, like the really theological portion of this whole question, it turned my world upside down and set me free at the same time. Like to quote Anne of Green Gables, I felt like someone handed me the moon and I didn't know what to do with it. It, it was so validating to see this, like everything I had experienced in my life called out as wrong and sinful and bad and ungodly and all of these things. When I had been told my whole life that keeping quiet about it was Christian, was godly, a good Christian will forgive and forget. A good Christian will let go because if you continue to think about it, it's bitterness and you're creating opportunities for Satan to have strongholds in your heart. So then, so then he addresses, um, The next question, which is really important to cult ideology, Rachel Held Evans asked him, how does Matthew 18 apply or not apply to abuse situations? Okay, so Bill Gothard was huge on Matthew 18 and and Boz lays it out. So let me just read what he said. In Matthew 18, which again is New Testament, for those of you who don't read the Bible, Jesus prescribes three progressive steps for handling personal offenses within the local church. One, a private confrontation. Two, a witness confrontation. And three, a wider confrontation before the church. At each step, the goal is repentance by the offender on the basis or as a basis for reconciliation with the offender so that the fellowship may be restored Um, So that fellowship may be restored with the victim. So again, all of this is like, let's reconcile victim and and offender in this Matthew 18 process. So I feel like that verse, like it doesn't really allude to that being what to do with criminal offenses. That's more of like, hey, you know, Bob, you know, raised his voice to Susie one time and now she's upset. Like this is more just like drama, how you handle drama. Within the church, which is exactly like what he crimes. says next. So I'm so to quote Boz again. I'm always encountering professing Christians who quote Matthew 18 as a biblical process by which child sexual abuse must be addressed within the Christian community. 
As a consequence, this passage is used as justification for one, not reporting abuse disclosures to the civil authorities, and two, convincing sexual abuse victims to privately confront their perpetrators, which is what I had to do alone in the dark in a car by Lake Michigan with the rapist, among other times. Um, Boz goes on, needless to say, this is a misinterpretation of Matthew 18, and it is hugely destructive on a number of fronts. Most importantly, this misrepresentation is simply not biblical. A fundamental point that must be understood early on in this discussion is that the crime of child sexual abuse is not merely a personal offense, but rather, and I love how he words this, it is an urgent public concern. Child sexual abuse does not even fit into the paradigm of which Jesus was speaking in Matthew 18. Jesus never intended his statements in Matthew 18 to be twisted into the required method for handling murder, rape, torture, kidnapping, or genocide. Sexual abuse is not a private matter, but rather a public and civic one, rightly under the sword of civil authority. All are endangered by this crime against a little one. Thus... Anyone claiming that we must follow the Matthew 18 progressive confrontation process before reporting disclosures of child sexual abuse to civil authorities is simply wrong-headed. I'm glad he was very, very clear on that. And yes. Because like, you see that in the church where there's so yes. many people that just like take verses out of context and like make it apply to their situation or a situation. And it's just like, that's not, yes, yeah. it's in there. Yes. It was, it's written in the Bible, but like, that's not what it meant. Like that you're, you're not, applying it to the yes. wrong spot. So after growing up in a Matthew 18 process cult and, and being required to follow that process with my rapist, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think I read this article like six times I bet. at the kitchen table. I mean, just it was like, like speaking stunned. directly to you. Yes. Like, this is your specific situation. Like, he's yes. specifically <laughs> talking about sexual assault or child yes. sexual assault. So I can I can see where this is like very impactful for you. Yes. I mean, it was life altering. Mm-hmm. And, and this was the moment I decided to report. I decided to report within days of reading this article. Oh, I'm sure that sounds like you. <laughs> what, must take action. <laughs> well, as soon as you have you your epiphany and you've decided, they're like, you're like, I've decided, so I'm doing it right now. I know we had plans, but this is, I've, I've made my mind. So I started contacting nonprofits that assist survivors legally to find out if my case was viable from a statute of limitations standpoint. So initially, I I talked to this pretty reputable nonprofit in Illinois where the crimes occurred. So this was before contacting authorities. Yes, because okay. I didn't. I was trying to figure out like, is it even worth it? Mm-hmm. And the charts online were so confusing, and like, I can't remember if Illinois did this at the time, but the statute of limitations in some states, at least ten years ago, when I was looking into this had shorter there were shorter statute of limitation requirements for family members if the family member was the offender which to me is crazy because it's it's harder to report a family member so i think you need a longer time and a lot of states are flipping over they've been changing there's there's been a lot of legal change and i don't know if it's all states now i haven't looked in a while but i know at least in some states 
rape is now and sexual assault, they're now being treated the same as murder where there is no statute of limitations. Well, that's good. So that's very good because br- yeah. survivors need to report on their own time frame when they can actually handle the implications of the report. Yeah. And it's weird that they would have even like put different time frames on. Mm-hmm. Like it protects family. Our society protects family. It's built into yeah. our legal system in a very toxic way. So so I talked to this really reputable nonprofit and they were like, hey, we looked at the charts and I'm so sorry, but it doesn't look like your case is viable. So I got off the phone with them and I was like, something doesn't seem right with this because based on my research, I think my case is viable and I just wanted them to kind of confirm it. Mm-hmm. So I kept digging and eventually I just, I called the sheriff's department in the county where the crime occurred. I told them what had happened. I told them when it had happened and they told me I was still within the statute of limitations and asked me to come in and make a report. Well, I was living in Ohio at the time because of my ex-husband's job in the military. And so I didn't, I wasn't able to just like, yeah, I'll be there tomorrow. It was a trip that had to be planned. Mm-hmm. And I, I did this for my little sister. I think, um, I think I made these calls in like early November and I decided to wait and report in January. So she would have like one last holiday season without this. As far as I knew, she didn't know yet. I had, I had been prohibited from telling her cause she's a minor or she was a minor at the time. Rick and Chris had said I was not allowed to tell her. So she didn't know, and I wanted her to have, like, one last holiday season of just being a kid. And if Andy had never hurt her, like, not having this over her head. So I got – instead, I got the the relatives together. I got my aunts and uncles and some of the older cousins together, my grandparents. And again, I put a a ton of prep work into this because I didn't want to report, and then that – is how they found out. I wanted to tell them first what was going on and then report after that. So I I think it might've been like October of 2013. I traveled to Illinois and I met with, um, I had previously told my grandparents, so they knew what was happening and they, they offered their home as a venue for this conversation. So we got the aunts and uncles. This is all Chris's side of the family because they were the ones we grew up really close to spending all of our time with. My paternal extended family was in California. We didn't see them very often. We weren't close, but we were very close with Chris's side of the family. I got them all together and I had a whole outline and, you know, all of the stuff. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> and I, I ran them through everything that had happened and how Rick and Chris had handled it. And they were all shocked. They were all really shocked. It was a very hard day. Were they there, Rick and Chris? No, no. And they didn't, um, they might've known. My grandparents might've told Chris, like out of respect that it was happening. I didn't tell them. (laughs) Um, Were any of your siblings there? No. So this was was just her siblings and a couple of the cousins. We were really close with, um, Chris's cousins. So my second cousins. So one of them was there. And I think my great aunt even might've been there because we were close with her growing up. And so I told them everything. And the, the funny thing was they all latched onto one thing. I said that what Rick and Chris had done was wrong, but unfortunately a very common response of hiding it. And that was what they held on to. As hmm. I found out in the aftermath was like, Oh, well, 
It wasn't great, but but it was normal. It was normal. <laughs> and they really ran with that and overdid like the grace part of of that whole like that was not my intent. My intent was for the family to help me hold Rick and Chris accountable. Mm-hmm. Which definitely did not happen. <laughs> so I was yeah, I was living in Ohio. I made another trip back to Illinois with my ex-husband in January of 2014. We were married at the time. But that was that was such a long day of interviews. There were two detectives. I had to tell my story about three times. I had to give them all the details, even the stuff that I really struggled to say at the time. Like It was every single minute, excruciating detail of how Andy had assaulted my body had to come out in that interview three times over. <laughs> so just out of curiosity, were these male or female? Detectives? They were both females. Okay. I think they did that on purpose. I was alone in a room with them. And I mean, it was a very difficult day. I cried a lot and you know, their job wasn't to make me feel you know, mm-hmm. good. Their job was to, what's the truth? We yeah. need to make sure this is the truth. We need to make sure that your story is consistent. We're going to ask you the same question a bunch of different ways to see if you're lying. Like, mm-hmm. and, and after the third round, like they visibly changed when they were certain that I was to the best of my ability, giving them the absolute God's honest truth. They relaxed and they sat back and they're like, their demeanor changed, their voices changed, their va- their facial expressions changed. And they were like, okay, we believe you. We're going to go investigate this. And then they called my ex in. So I had to leave. He wasn't allowed to be in the interview room with me. I wasn't allowed to be in the interview room with him. His interview was not as long as mine. Mine was like an eight hour ordeal. We were there for a very long time that day. Was it helpful for you that they were women? Well, at that point, I'd already been through exposure therapy with a male psychologist. Okay. So I think I would have done the same thing either mm-hmm. way. I think part of me was a little relieved, <laughs> but they looked mean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they came in, they had such cop face, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So they weren't like giving off warm, fuzzy vibes or anything, but they were female. So I think I think I was relieved. But yeah, then they interviewed my ex and then they were like, all right, we're going to go investigate this and we'll get back to you. So I went in with a list of everyone who could corroborate my story, including their phone numbers, their dates of birth, their address, their email address, like everything. And I had quite a list because at this point, every member of my immediate family, except Abby, Mm -hmm. the the youngest, had spoken with Andy about what he did to me. Like he had confessed it to them. Mm -hmm. Um. And my mother's siblings had had a meeting with her, with Chris, after that initial meeting where I told them all about it, where she confirmed what had happened. And I learned later she told them to stay out of it because she was afraid I was going to go to the police and that they shouldn't (laughs) encourage it or support it. So bottom line, my immediate and extended family had confirmed that the assault was real. Because remember, Chris had seen like physical evidence Mm -hmm. on my body. So, So she was like, a firsthand witness or whatever you call that. Um, so so uh, everything had been confirmed. Yeah. Everyone knew. So at this point, just from a, a legal standpoint, you're an adult at this point, mm-hmm. but it was still a child sex crime. Yes. And now you have more adults that know about this. 
Yeah, but they, they weren't mandated to report because I was an adult. And and they okay. like, well, and that's a tough one because like mandatory reporters versus non-mandatory reporters. Mm-hmm. But, you know, none of them had to do anything because I was an adult mm-hmm. when they found out. Um, but Chris, Chris's scare tactic work and worked and they all like stayed away from me because she, I don't know what she threatened them with or if she threatened them or if like Chris... Has a temper, as we've discussed. So I don't know if she just like went off on them and they didn't want to be part of the drama. But anyways, I had this this big list with all the data. And I think the detectives were like, whoa, when I handed it to them, like they weren't used to getting all of that information in such an orderly fashion. But I was like, <laughs> I have spreadsheets. <laughs> sounds right. So I went in with all my spreadsheets. So they were like, OK, on this list, who is most likely to talk? Like who is most likely to back you up? And I very confidently said, Andrea, my oldest sister. <sighs> Why did you say that? Because uh, she'd had the best response of anyone I'd ever told. Okay. Remember the story, the like, band. driving back mm-hmm. in the car with her, holding my hand and crying and telling me how much she loved me and she was so sorry it happened and, like, actually trying to stay present in my life after that in meaningful ways. So they called her first. And she started blowing up my phone and I didn't answer. And I got this voicemail. So let's start here. What's going on, Amanda? Give me a call. I'd really like to know why I just had a call from a detective. What are you trying to accomplish, young lady? Give me a call. Cannot believe you. So that was definitely not the response you were hoping to get from her. For the detective's sake. Uh, Well, I mean, your sake too, but like... Well, okay, she, so there's more. Did she? Okay. Um. So the detectives call me just like shocked, laughing, like not funny, <laughs> haha, like funny. This is the weirdest thing. Yeah. Um. And they they said, okay, so we we called your sister, and we asked her to confirm that your brother sexually assaulted you, and she was like. Well, yes, he did it, but he said he was sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, your family's really weird. Exactly. And I was like, no shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh. I bet that totally just twisted their mind that like, okay, well, we've got this story from her and all of this evidence. And then they just confirmed it like, oh, it's no big deal. And they're probably just like, what, what is happening? They're probably used to people being deceptive and lying and like. But Satan's fiery darts, Kyle, you keep forgetting about Satan's fiery darts. Yeah, but nobody else knows about (laughs) Satan's fiery darts. No, I'd already told the detectives all of the spiritual manipulation that had been used Mm -hmm. to keep me quiet. That was part of like the interview process. Um, Because they, everyone is going to ask you, why did it take you so long to report? Which is such a victim blaming statement. Mm -hmm. And I wish it would be eradicated from interview techniques and just conversation in general. But yeah, they had already asked me what took you so long to report. So I had laid out this whole thing. Like, (laughs) have you taught, what do you know about strongholds and satanic influence and umbrellas (laughs) of protection? probably one of the weirdest interviews they'd ever done about and then they got confirmation yes. in one phone call yes that they're like holy because she couldn't lie to the authorities yeah because satan's fiery darts <laughs> and the umbrella protection and satan's strongholds and you know i'm not gonna lie like if i was the detective and you told me like all right 
This is what happened. And none of them can lie because <laughs> it's Satan's fiery darts. So I'd be like, oh, I'm going to have fun with this. Like, I'm going to go talk to them and ask them all of the questions. Just watch their faces. They're like, well, but like... I don't, I don't want to, but I have to. So I'm just gonna tell you, that, like, they're oh, all man. on truth serum, and they can't even help it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so Andrea immediately called Rick and Chris. I don't know if Andrea called Andy. I think maybe Rick did, and and Andy, Rick, and Chris lawyered up immediately. Like immediately, Andy's lawyer reached out to the sheriff's office to arrange for Andy to turn himself in because. So the crimes all happened in Illinois. Mm -hmm. The family, including Andy, with some exceptions, the family was living in Wisconsin at the time. So his lawyer, Andy's lawyer, advised him to turn himself in because it would decomplicate an arrest across state lines and make him look cooperative and, like, maybe things would go easier for him. Right. So, but then the texts from Andrea's husband started rolling in. This is Todd. Okay. And so you, I assume you never called her back. Um, no, the detectives told, told me don't not. engage. Okay. They were like, you, we're not saying you can never talk to your family. We're saying do not talk to them about the case. Mm-hmm. So I told Andrea not to speak to me like that and that I wasn't going to, you know, mm-hmm. talk about the case with her. And then I get this message the next day from her husband. Amanda, this is Todd. You have no idea what you've done to my wife emotionally by trying to drag her into this mess you are creating. Don't ever contact her again and leave my family alone. Shortly followed up by the next one, like an hour later. And I didn't, I don't think I responded at all to Todd. Mm -hmm. Um, No, I didn't. I have nothing here. Then Todd texts me and Noah, my ex-husband, and he goes, you are both quite a pair. You should be ashamed of yourselves. This is not our matter, and you will leave us out of it. <laughs> Too late. We don't get that privilege. No. <laughs> it was everyone's matter at that point. Like, everyone who knew and mm-hmm. was complicit in covering it up. Yeah. So, I, I don't know what the detective said to Andrea, but she was scared she was going to be charged for being complicit. They well, never she, did. Well, she, she's how many years old? She's ten, 10 years older than ten. you. So, like, at some point she was. Yeah. So, culpable. I was, like, 16 and she was 26. Mm-hmm. So, I was a minor when she found out. And they, I guess they must have, like, drilled her on that. Mm-hmm. Because she was freaking out in her texts to me about, like, you're, she called them my henchmen. She was like, your henchmen are trying to incriminate <laughs> me. Oh, wait. Maybe I can find this text real quick. It's. It's kind of funny, actually. Yes, my henchman. So I guess I have henchmen now. Um, Very cool. Good thing they're like, you know, got good cop face. And I'm sure they had all kinds of fun with this. Oh, I must have deleted her texts or they're archived or something. Maybe I'll we'll put those up in in a post or something. But yeah, so my my henchmen were trying to incriminate her. I don't know what they said, but they never pressed charges yeah. against her and I don't even know if the statute of limitations or if they could or what. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was rough. And I was back home at that point when Todd was texting. Um, Noah was back at work. I worked from home. And Noah came home that day to find me curled up under my desk sobbing. I had a couple little nephews at that point, um, Andrea and Todd's kids, whom I had just been very, like, connected to. Mm -hmm. I had, you know, been out there to help after they were born and all that kind of stuff. 
And I knew, I knew when I reported I was going to lose everyone. And then it happened the next day. Like it started with, you you never talk to us again. Don't ever contact us again. And I haven't, and they have never reached out in 10 years. Um, I never heard from my sister. So the the detective started interviewing folks and um, Rick and Chris refused to talk to them. They had to consent to a child forensic exam for Abigail. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. That's, that's good. Yeah. Um, but I think they got to be in the room with her while she was interviewed. So who knows the accuracy oh, So this of wasn't that. like a physical exam. This no, was just a verbal. like an interview, okay. which like I think I said in a previous episode, I've since found out that those are not always <laughs> any good. It depends on the extent to which the interviewer is trained. Yeah. I mean, which that's, sometimes doesn't happen. Yeah, that's a tricky area because it's a minor. So mm-hmm. you should like in any other situation, you would think, okay, well, the parents should be allowed to be present but when you're trying to yeah. ask a child about parents something. who cover up a crime <laughs> yeah yeah and then you let them in the room like it's, yeah. it's the same thing like of course they're not gonna like roll over on their parents while they're sitting you know mm-hmm. or the perpetrator in this case like of course yeah. they're not gonna roll over while they're sitting next to you yeah um from what i understand all of my siblings refuse to confirm or deny after Andrea. <laughs> okay. So Andrea was the yeah. only one that said anything. Yeah. And then the, then Rick and Chris's lawyer, I'm sure, t- gave them all the verbiage to say. And I know I haven't heard from Amy ever again. And then they there was a pastor who found out about it. I was not a minor anymore. He was the family church pastor, and he had officiated my wedding mm-hmm. to Noah and he had officiated Andy and Emily's wedding and, you know. So is this a cult pastor? No, just- he was very fundy, though. Very mm-hmm. fundamentalist. It was a non-denominational Bible church we started attending after we, like, stopped paying cult dues. And our cult church, like, kind of slowly disbanded as kids got older and were like, this church sucks. We want to go somewhere else. <laughs> so like as adults, the kids stopped mm-hmm. attending and started going to other churches. And then it was just like six adult parents left and they were like, well, this is dumb. So they just disbanded the little cult church. And we started going to this non-denominational Bible church. And that pastor was on my list of folks who knew, who had heard it from Rick and Chris, from Andy, and from me. Because I raised a ruckus, you know, in college mm-hmm. when I started going to therapy. So Rick and Chris, I guess, Chris in desperation reached out to this pastor to try to, like, get me under control. Oh. So he had a couple meetings with me. Um, and was he? he? He was very neutral and just very focused on, like, my forgiveness. Okay. Because at this point, he's not – I are, are pastors mandatory reporters when Um, it's necessary yeah like for minors i think they are priests aren't i think catholic priests have different stuff but i think that um because like confessions and Mm -hmm. stuff but i think at least every program i ever ran in a church we were considered mandatory reporters for minors But I wasn't you're, a minor. Yeah, I mean, you're too old at that So point, yeah. he he wasn't going to talk to the lawyers at, or to the detectives. And one of them, like, I think she's so badass because she just, like, played his own spirituality right back at him. And, he, <laughs> and she was like, do you think God would want you to lie? And he was like, no. And then he told them, <laughs> like, that it had happened and mm-hmm. that he had talked to Andy and me and Rick and Chris about it. So at that point, they had enough. I don't – they reached out to my aunts and uncles – 
I think my grandpa might have sort of cooperated. I don't know if anyone else did. Um, they might have done the same, like, can't confirm or deny thing. Mm-hmm. But anyways, with they like they had enough. I was a credible witness, and I had had multiple people corroborate that it had happened mm-hmm. and stuff. So a few months after I reported, I had to go back to Illinois. So, so this investigation took a couple months. And then I went back to Illinois with my ex to meet with the sheriff's office and the assistant state's attorney the day Andy turned himself in. So he was kept in a room alone. I think Rick, Chris, and his wife Emily dropped him off. And that was the day I found out Emily was pregnant. Okay. I had been trying so hard to report before he could have a kid. Oh, so this um, was his first kid. Yeah. Yeah. I was... In Chino? Oh, yeah. So Jeez. I made Andy tell Emily after they got engaged. I told him he had to or I would. So I don't know what or how much Andy actually told her, but mm-hmm. he called or texted me. It might have been a text after he told her. And she said she still loved him and wanted to marry him. Okay. And they kept having babies through the whole court thing. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to tell whether, you know, how much of that was just the cult ideology. She wasn't in the cult. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. So Andy, that day that he turned himself in and I had to be there, he was kept alone in a room and I was escorted absolutely everywhere. Like they were, they were very good to me. They were very protective. Like they even followed me into the restroom so that I never had to encounter Andy alone. Um, and I didn't end up seeing him. They did a really good job keeping us away from each other. So did, were they keeping you away from everybody or just him? Just him. Rick and Chris and Emily left because the detectives were like, yeah, we're holding him as long as we legally can. I think they <laughs> held him for like three days. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, they, they held him to the maximum extent permissible by law. And apparently he asked for a Bible to read while alone in the room. Mm-hmm. I don't think they had one. So he just oh, got no. to sit there with his <laughs> thoughts. Um, in my interview that day, that was another eight or ten hours. Um Noah was with me, but he wasn't allowed to, like, be in the room with me. He was in the waiting room for, like, 10 hours while I was in interviews with the state's attorney because they had to go over everything all over again. And, you know. Were you present for that? Like, was it just the detectives talking to the state's attorney? No, it was was state's attorney redoing everything the detectives had done, but now it was the lawyers, the prosecutor. So she had to, like, double it up because they won't – Generally speaking, the state will not take a case they don't think they can win. Mm-hmm. So part of like the comfort for me in all of this is they thought they could win my case. That's why they took it. Like I was a credible yeah. witness. I had people corroborate my story. I had physical evidence of like time frames, like objects I owned with dates in them. Because the whole thing came down to dates. He... He was chargeable as an adult if he had committed even one sex crime against me on or after the age of 14, which I had evidence he had done. So that moved the whole thing into like, okay, he's chargeable as an adult. Was it just because when you were 14, he was? No, when he was 14, he had to be 14. Oh, okay. And it it extended beyond that um, quite a bit. But I had like objects with dates in them that I was like, I owned this. Like he- assaulted me while reading this book, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Um, 
And so, so that really helped because it had all the dates and everything. So I guess the comfort even, or we're going to get to how it all ended, but the comfort for me was like, I did my part. I, I reported, I was a credible witness and they picked up the case because they thought they could win it or at least get, you know, some sort of a conviction. At the end of that day, I had to look at Andy's mugshot and <sighs> confirm it was him. And that was hard because he still scared me back then. Mm-hmm. I didn't stay in town after that. I didn't stay for Andy's arraignment, like knowing I had to get back to work. But I told, I was told by the detectives that the judge laid into Rick and Chris in the courtroom. <laughs> I bet um, someone needed to, like just some other adult needed to be like, what the hell is wrong with you? Yes. And he did. And he told them if the statute of limitations hadn't run out against them, he would charge them right there. And that made me really happy. So Andy was charged with aggravated criminal sexual assault, class X felony, about as bad as it could be. I think had he been found guilty on all counts, he was looking at like almost 100 years of combined sentencing. So how many charges did they bring against him? I don't, oh gosh, I'd have to go back and look at that paperwork. But so aggravated is because he threatened to kill me and and use like knives and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And then criminal sexual assault. I forget what why they throw criminal in there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was, it was about as, it's as bad as it could be for that. Um, I think my grandparents were present for the arraignment. And from what I know, they helped pay for Andy's bail. Is this, which is this? Chris's your, parents. Chris's parents. Yeah. So he was released without being allowed to have unsupervised access to minors, including my little sister. And I remember crying and thinking like, finally, I finally protected her. But, of course, within a year or so, she supposedly wrote that letter we've referenced before to the judge begging to have visits with her dear brother, um, which the judge granted. So Abby stopped talking to me. I exchanged a couple texts with her after I reported, but in April. So I reported in January. um, And by April, she texted me and told me she couldn't talk to me anymore because their lawyer had told her not to. And how old was she at this point? 16, I want to say. Okay. I think that was right after. Yeah, it was. Yes, because I wished her a happy sweet 16. It was right after her 16th birthday, like the next week. I've had zero communication with her since April 14th, 2014. Wow. It's almost almost a decade ago. Yeah. So then that started years and years and years of continuances which is basically just the judge granting more time for the lawyers to get their shit together <laughs> um and they they tend to grant a lot of continuances when it's a severe um class x crime yeah, yeah. so then there were just a lot of real fun moments like finding out getting calls from random friends from college finding out Chris and Andrea they were calling my professors, friends, college roommates, saying that they needed help to help me, like something had happened to me. And they needed these people to tell them anything I ever might have told them about the sexual assault. Um, and then if they would be willing to testify that I was like changing my story, which hadn't happened and no one was willing to do it. And they all just called me and they were like, your family's really weird. What's going on? Mm-hmm. So I told I told the prosecutor and they were like, okay, I know this sucks, but you need to get in touch with absolutely everyone you think they might contact. Explain what's going on and ask them to let you know if if your family reaches out. 
And so that was really awkward. I had to call like random folks, like track down and call random folks from college. Like Chris and Andrea were finding people I didn't even know they knew about. There was just a lot of cleanup. And then I had to put a whole blast out on social media saying like, hey guys, this is what's going on. If you're contacted by anyone from my biological family or that my brother's defense attorney or anything like, please don't speak to them. Please let me know that it happened. So I had an unfortunately high number of people contact me like, yeah, your sister tried to call me. Yeah, your mom tried to call me. Blah, blah, blah. It was, it was such a mess. And so frustrating. And I I hated bothering everyone with my personal life. It was also like, I wasn't ready to put it all out there. Yeah, that was going to be my question. It's just like, so you were kind of forced and like going around and now just like you hadn't told anybody or you hadn't told many people. I hadn't told many, but I had to publicize it. Right. And then you, you you know, now you've got to call them and be like, all right, here's what happened. Like, how were you, how did you handle that? I guess. Were you just like, I just put my head down and got it done and I hated every second of it. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, continuance after continuance, like years are going by and people don't understand trauma. They don't understand like folks who haven't been through it. And the prosecutor wasn't a bad person. She was just like, this was her job, mm-hmm. you know? And what does she do every day? Deal with sexual assault cases. And so she would give me the most callous stuff, like, because my, my, oh, the stupid um, victim advocate, she, I think I got a couple calls from her ever in, in four years. And she was supposed to call me after every court hearing, which was about every month they had to check in with the judge. Um, and she was supposed to call me after every single one and give me an update. But like years went by without hearing from her. I couldn't reach her. She didn't return my calls. Like she was horrible, absolutely horrible. So I ended up bugging the the prosecutor like, hey, I know there was another court date. When's the next one? What happened? And she'd be like, well, there was a continuance. Well, oh, and then they tried to get my mental health records. I get a call one fine day at work from that um the counselor I talked about in one of the previous episodes where Andy had like made an anonymous donation to cover mm-hmm. my copays. She called me and she was like, okay, so there is a lawyer trying to get your mental health records. What do you want me to do? And I was like, stop it, which legally she could. And then the prosecution helped stop that. They, they shut the whole thing down and my medical and mental health records were never released. What are they legally allowed to do? Do you have to sign for anybody to have access yeah. to your medical well, records? Well, I mean, they can, they, you can try to get it subpoenaed, mm-hmm. but unless there's like But you really, have to go through that process. Yeah, and, and like a judge has to decide that this is important enough evidence, and fortunately the judge so just that's not shut they, the whole they, thing they weren't down. trying to go that route. They were just trying no, to call No, they were just trying to get, get, get my stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... So she shut that down. The prosecutor, the prosecutor took it to the judge. He shut it down. And so, yeah, but, but the prosecutor would tell me stuff like, Hey, just, you know, try to forget about this and live your life. And I'm like, how am I supposed to forget about this? That, that I carried that like a weight every day for four years. And I did live my life. Like I applied for the military. I got my master's degree. I did a lot in those four years to keep moving my life forward. But I couldn't just forget that there was a case going on in another state against my brother for raping me. Like, how am I supposed to forget about that? Mm -hmm. 
So that was a very, I hated that part of it because everyone in the legal system just kept saying that line to me, just try to forget about it and live your life. And I'm like, you motherfuckers, like, do you <laughs> yeah. understand anything? This giant dark cloud looming uh, over you until this closes. Yeah. When I reported, I was told by the state's attorney, the assistant state's attorney, so the prosecutor, that the minimum, the, the absolute minimum, or we would go to trial, is he would plead to sex offender registration for life and sex offender probation. And I wanted prison, mm -hmm. but they were like, we're going to manage your expectations right now. We don't think that'll happen, but we will go to trial if he's not willing to plead to sex offender registry for life and sex offender probation. And sex offender probation is pretty shitty, like... It's, I don't know if you even get electronics oh, or like, wow. or you get like a real slimmed down version of like <laughs> a phone for emergencies or something. Like, I don't know if you get internet, like he wouldn't be allowed to have his own children in his home. It, it oh, was okay. good. Like it was what it okay. needed to happen. Just what it's kind of like all the strings, just not actual prison. Mm -hmm. So, and, and the, the state's attorney at the time was real hard on sex offenders well, then two years into this, Miss Kimberly Fox took over as state's attorney and Andy switched law firms and his new lawyers were politically connected to her. And those lawyers took the case directly to her. And she had a very different and lenient approach to it. She thought that the case needed to be handled how it would have been had it happened in the 90s. How did the judge allow that to happen? Oh, or was it not really known? Well, there's okay, I'll get we'll to get that. Um, and also, so they were. What year was this taking place? This would have been like 2016. So 2016, and they're going back and saying, we're going to try this with the laws that were in place in when the crime happened. Is that normal? I don't know. I think maybe, but they had the option to not. Like, legally, they had the option to hold him accountable. Hmm. Like, as an adult mm -hmm. in 2016. 2014 it was all year 2014 15 16 17 so i reported january of 2014 and the whole thing ended at the end of the year 2017 so four whole calendar years um so the prosecutor told me that in 15 years she'd worked there she had never seen anyone jump a case to the state's attorney like she'd never seen anyone jump the chain like that Especially for a case that was so straightforward. Like, my case was incredibly straightforward. Mm -hmm. And um, so Andy's lawyers talked Kimberly Fox into mandating, like, telling the prosecutor that she had to reduce the charges down to misdemeanor battery. No sex offender registration, no sex offender probation, just a few years of regular probation. He'd still have access to minors, and his children would grow up with a sex offender father in the home. It's just crazy that like they would allow that that backdoor the backdoor deal. Backdoor she was in the deal. news for. Well, I mean, just the fact that his lawyers like that. were talking to the state's attorney, the state's attorney's boss. No, like she's attorney. the state's attorney, so all the prosecutors under her are like assistant state's attorneys. But so they went like right to the top. That's what I mean, though. Yeah. So like they went over your lawyer's head. Mm -hmm. And like we say, my but it wasn't even my lawyer. Like, well, the lawyer it was representing the state you. versus no representing the state. I was a witness, yeah. so it was the state versus Andrew Lewis, right? So, yeah, I mean, I understand the the yeah difference there, but like they're representing your case, yeah. And um, God, to this day, I think about him giving his daughter a bath or helping her in the bathroom or 
changing her or getting her dressed or anything. And I just want to vomit. Yeah, that's, I can't, I, mean, I don't even know them. And I'm just like cringe at the fact that like any, any, you know, anybody's done something like that. And then, giving them access to a child, even if it's their own. Emily having babies with him. First of all, knowing something, I don't Mm -hmm. know again, how much he told her, but she knew something before she married him. And then she had babies with him and then continued to have babies with him. Even as all of the evidence was coming out about what he had done. Yeah. And then like, how does she let her own children around him? She was a very weak minded. She's, I think he picked her. Because she's very weak-minded. And even, like, her handwriting as a full-grown adult, like, the thank-you cards they sent out from their wedding, it looked like a toddler wrote them. And she kept, like, failing out of college classes and stuff. And, like, because she just she just wanted to, like, be a stay-at-home mom and have some guy take care of her. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a stay-at-home mom. There's nothing wrong with wanting your life calling to be raising children and, and giving them a great home environment. But that wasn't how Emily talked about it. She mm-hmm. just wanted to not work. She didn't. She hated working. She hated going to school. She just wanted someone to take care of her and give her a life and a house and babies. And she... So I think Andy very cunningly selected a very weak-minded person mm-hmm. as a wife. And I think he, he manipulated her and... I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, well, should I feel bad for Emily? Is she another victim in all of this? Which would kick in all of my like protective, like, (laughs) how do we take care of victims? And on the other hand, I'm like, she fucking knew. Mm -hmm. She knew and she married him because she wanted her easy little life. Yeah. I mean, there's not much you can do when like someone is aware of it and still being. And they were a rebound for each other. They'd both been engaged. And I think Emily was just like ready to get married. And then that wedding didn't happen. And then Andy came along and then they rebounded on each other. And then she still got to have her wedding. Okay. (laughs) So. Very opportunistic. Yeah. Yeah. So I I just, I think, I think he's a predator. And I think he even selected a spouse with predatory intent. Um, Someone he could control and manipulate. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, I get wind of this whole thing. So in 2017, that's when they, um, really started like, cause the prosecutor had been fighting this. And I, I found out later, like she almost lost her job. She fought so hard against Kimberly Fox's, like, you've got to reduce the charges mandate. Mm. So she arranged, the prosecutor arranged to fly me in to Chicago area to make a preliminary victim impact statement with Kimberly Fox's number two and number three. In the whole, like, hierarchy of the state's attorney. So, it was probably the best she could do to, like, fight it. Yes. So, a few weeks before leaving for officer training for the Air Force, instead of, like, doing lots of push-ups and, you know, spending time with my loved ones, I flew to Chicago to make a preliminary victim impact statement with these two individuals. And the prosecutor was there. Um The woman, so it was a man and a woman. The number two is a man. The number three is a woman. She sobbed through my statement and the man kept having to like leave the room to get water. And they thanked me for coming in and said they would discuss it with Kimberly Fox. I left for officer training. Um, And a few weeks later, like two weeks into officer training, no, one week, one week into officer training, I got an email saying that Kimberly had decided 
Kimberly Fox had decided to maintain her decision to reduce the charges to misdemeanor battery and that I was needed to come to a victim impact statement at the sentencing hearing. And um, could I come now? <laughs> and I was like, okay, y'all, this is after two years of prepping all of y'all for the fact that I'm going to be like totally unavailable for two months mm -hmm. for officer training. Cause my, my date for officer training kept getting pushed due to like funding stuff with the air force. So I waited for two years to ship out to officer training. So they'd had two years of me being like, Hey, there's going to be two months where I'm going to be completely unavailable. Don't even know if I'll have access to my email. Definitely won't have access to my phone. Like, how are we going to handle this? And they were like, don't worry. After almost four years, it's not going to go down in the two months you're gone. It's not. You're fine. Of course. One week into it, the whole thing goes down and they're like, we're ready for sentencing. <laughs> and so I got them to hold off until like for almost two months until I could be there. And um, I had to finish the remaining almost two months of officer training with the weight of knowing the charges were officially reduced and Andy was basically getting away with it. And it was, it was incredibly difficult. Um, and I had to write my victim impact statement while I was in officer training with time. I didn't have, because mm -hmm. you don't have time for anything. Like you don't even sleep really. And, um, but I had worked so hard to get my military career and I'd waited so long to ship out. And I was, I was healthy enough at that point. I was like, okay, I'm going to compartmentalize the living daylights out of this. And this is going to go over here and it hurts and it's, it's hard. And I do have to access it to write my victim impact statement, but I'm here and I'm going to focus on training. And, um, I, I was a distinguished graduate for that training, which means I graduated at the top of my class. And, um, even with all of that going on, and then I had to tell my brand new leadership, I was like, hi, I'm brand new to the military. Also, there's this huge saga behind me of like <laughs> rape and uh, I need to go be a witness in a case against my brother, whom I reported to the authorities for childhood sexual assault. And that was a little awkward. <laughs> um, but they, you know, I've got to say my leadership did such a good job and they arranged like all of this stuff for me to get like permissive leave. So basically like my PTO wasn't going to be charged. There's, there's a way you can do that where it's like official business for the, um, for the military. And this was considered official business. So they arranged for me to like go to Chicago to do my victim impact statement. And then they were like, how about we also give you a minute to breathe? Cause this is a lot. So they let me, you don't, you start with like no PTO, right? So they let me go negative into my PTO. They were like, take a week. And they changed my reporting date to my first base and everything so that I could just like go home and breathe for a week between reporting and showing up. And they, they did a bunch of stuff and they jumped through a ton of hoops to try to take the best care of me they could during all of that. And I deeply, deeply appreciate that. So I know that had to have been super hard on you because I know how you work. And I know <laughs> that once you were at OTS, like officer training school, that was going to be a hundred and, 95% of you <laughs> because 110% yeah. is not enough. Yeah. Um, so I can't imagine trying to process that at all while you're there because your brain's like a thousand percent into what you were learning and what you were doing. So, yeah. And I, you know, I, I started developing medical issues um, that were for real this time. I'm I think sure all the stress, lot of stress. And that's yeah. why I'm, Ultimately, I, I made it five years in the military before I had to medically retire due to those 
to that disease and um it's incurable so i'm still dealing with it but and a lot of other things that happened along yeah, the way there with that but yeah. yeah so but that all started after i'd already joined the military like in the middle of training and at the time i was like oh it's just we call it camp crud like everyone gets really sick because mm-hmm. it's just a big pool of germs and from everywhere yeah every from corner everywhere of the country um so i thought it was just camp crud and then i never got better um, but I did manage to to make it through five years of service before before I had to leave. But anyways, um, and you were able to make it through OTS at yes. the top of the class. So yeah. it's it's very impressive that Thanks. you're able to do that. And it's it's nice to hear that they were your first command team was willing to do whatever they had to to give you some space and yes. and you know. I I got very lucky in my military career with with only a couple exceptions. I just had phenomenal leadership. So I I like literally marched from OTS. <laughs> I'm sure you're being <laughs> like literally. I was still marching. Yes. Anyone who's been through military training, you know, like the first couple weeks after you leave, and you still have your hands and like the perfect fist thing for how you march, and you're still like catching yourself walking in step with the person next to you. Like that's me. It's standing that's attention, me. even though oh, I was, to. <laughs> and I was at parade rest all the time. It's fine. Um, so I went straight. From OTS, I went back to my adoptive parents' house in Ohio for the weekend. And then we all traveled to Chicago together for the sentencing hearing. And my ex, um, my ex's parents and sister also joined me. So I had my ex, my adoptive parents, my ex-in-laws, and my ex-sister-in-law mm-hmm. now. They weren't exes at the time. So we'll get to, I think this is probably the first time you've mentioned adoptive parents. Uh, I think I've, I think I've brought them up in other episodes. We'll We'll, we'll do, yeah, we'll do that some other time. It's a good story. Um, So they were all like literally on my side of the courtroom and my, my mom and my ex took me shopping for civilian court clothes because they just had like uniforms and I couldn't show up in uniform. That was not allowed. By so the military or by the court? By the military. Okay. Like, there are very specific rules for when you can and cannot wear your oh, I assume uniform. You probably can only wear it to, like, JAG court. Yeah, like so, military like, military, court. you have to dress up yeah. in, like, your service, like, your fancy, not the fanciest. Oh, gosh, people don't care anyways. Um, <laughs> military. Somebody, I'm sure there's plenty of military people on here that care, but yes. Okay, but, no, I could not wear it to a civilian criminal case because mm-hmm. I was not testifying over service related stuff. On behalf of the military, I was testifying mm-hmm. as like private citizen um, witness. So I wore a business suit with my hair in a military bun. And when I stepped into the courthouse, the local PD thought I was an FBI agent. And that made me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh, I, I really am so grateful for how the timing worked out, actually. Like, it was so hard to handle all of that during officer training, but going straight from officer training to a very emotionally intense situation, I had I had military bearing. And I yeah. just relied on that to get me through the whole day in court. I'm sure you had a ton of, like, confidence coming out of Oh, OTS. gosh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just felt very strong and powerful and like capable mm-hmm. of protecting myself walking into that scenario, which when you're like about to be six feet away from the person who raped you a bunch of times, mm-hmm. it just, the timing I think was actually very beneficial to my mental health and my ability to get through that whole experience. 
Well, first uh, I walked in and my ex had to step away for something. And my uncle, one of my uncles came up and just started hugging me without permission. And I pushed back and I, I told him, you know, I didn't agree with how he had handled all of this. And he was like, well, I'm just doing what you asked and, and loving everyone. I'm like, I never, I never said that. I wanted accountability. I didn't fight with him. I just told him to go away. And he was like, well, everyone else over there. And he points to more of my relatives and immediate family members. He's like, they can see you, but none, no one else wanted to come up. But I wanted to come up and give you a hug. And I'm like, go away and leave me alone. So he left. Um, but yeah, the whole family, the whole extended family, they, they were all out of my life at that point because they just wanted to love everyone and not take sides. But they were like still checking on and showing up for my brother, but mm-hmm. not me. Mm-hmm. So tell me how that's being neutral. <laughs> and, you know, the Desmond Tutu quote, when you are neutral in the face of oppression, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. Mm-hmm. And and that that was my extended family. They chose the side of the oppressor through their neutrality, which wasn't actually that neutral. Um, so I still am. I, I haven't forgiven them for that, if I'm being honest. Like, I don't like any of them and they're not in my life. So, yeah, I mean, the fact I mean, we don't have to linger on this. Just the fact that, you know, it's been so long and you've still not heard from most of most, them. Almost all of them. Almost all of them. And the, the thing the, that's like that, there's no reason to. You like, know, the thing that's so crazy to me is my grandma, she's like a super feminist and she worked for the archdiocese in Chicago. And after the whole Catholic church sex scandal, she got like hundreds of hours of training in how to respond appropriately to sexual assault. And then I have two, um, my aunt and my aunt through marriage, she married my mother's younger brother. They're both educators, special education educators. And they know, I know that they have had copious amounts of training around that as educators and as mandatory reporters. Mm-hmm. And um, my my aunt, my biological mother's older sister, Kathy, like I grew up, she was like this empowered feminist, like, oh my gosh. And, and I had another uncle who like marched in all of these, you know, parades against oppression and all this stuff. But when it was their own family, when it was their niece, their granddaughter, they fucking bailed. And they, like, nothing that they knew or had been trained in or learned mattered. They just took the easy path. And none of them stood with me. Um, In fact, that day in court, like, literally, literally, they were on my brother's side of the courtroom supporting him. I had, for sure, the one uncle, my biological father was there. Chris didn't go. I don't know why. Um, Abby was there. I think two of my younger brothers were there. There was uh, the pastor who officiated my wedding was there supporting Andy and some of Andy's friends from the cult. <laughs> Your face. <laughs> what? Yeah, he was there as spiritual support for the family on oh, Andy's side. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then some of Andy's cult friends were there. Although I did notice they got up and left. I don't know if they knew the extent of what he had done. Yeah. I mean, because it got spelled out that day. Yeah. And Emily was there too. His wife was there too. So I know she knows because she heard my statement mm-hmm. and I talked about some of the stuff he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay. So first we met with the prosecutor, me and like my little entourage, we went and met with the prosecutor. She got us in the courtroom, told us where to sit. And one of the hardest moments of my life is after four fucking years of and a whole lifetime. When the prosecutor got up and had to say, judge, we've agreed to a plea deal. We've reached a plea deal. 
and we are reducing the charges from aggravated criminal sexual assault to misdemeanor battery. And it was like my whole life of fighting to survive and the last four years of pushing through all the challenges and mental health crises of reporting and everything were for nothing. That was a really bad moment. Um, Andy did have to allocute or admit to sexually abusing me. It's on the record. He read some dumb statement about how he hoped we could one day be restored to a loving relationship. Still doesn't stop. Nope. Um, And then the judge called me up and I read my victim impact statement loud enough for the entire courtroom to hear. Um, And they all heard as I described what he did to me and the impact it had on my life. You know, after after a lot of thought, I've decided to share that statement here. I'm going to read it, but I'm going to skip the graphic details. (laughs) Um, I just don't think that's that's necessary. I didn't have to go into a ton of detail. In my statement, because um, the judge already knew everything. It was all, yeah. I haven't read this in a long time. My name is Amanda Rivers. I reported my older brother for sexually assaulting me almost four years ago, so it was important to me to be here today to share the impact his crimes have had on my life. Since you're familiar with the circumstances of the case, I will simply bring your attention to a few of the details before I begin to discuss the impact. Andrew is seven and a half years older than I am, and his sexual abuse of me began with a significant period of grooming that progressed to increasingly violent sexual assault. He told me he would cut me with his knives and kill me if I told our parents, so it took me a long time to disclose the abuse. When I finally did tell our parents, they got me and Andrew up early one morning, sat us down at the kitchen table, and had him apologize to me. He nearly strangled me to death in retaliation, then went right back to abusing me and increased threats against my body and my life. Eventually, I disclosed the ongoing abuse to my parents. Again, they got us up early, sat us down at the kitchen table, and told him to apologize. A lot of people ask why it took me so long to report. I'd like to clear that up before we get started. First, my parents told me not to tell the police because they would take me and my siblings away and we might not ever see each other again. Second, my parents and Andrew used the family's religious beliefs to control my actions. They told me that the good Christian thing to do was forgive Andrew and forget about the abuse. Good Christians forgive as God has forgiven and don't hold grudges. They told me the Bible said if I didn't forgive Andrew, God wouldn't forgive me. Third, my parents and the siblings who knew about the abuse insisted that God had made Andrew better and he was okay. They told me I needed to believe the same. Finally, there is an incredible amount of shame and embarrassment associated with sexual abuse. It's particularly difficult for children to recognize that the shame and embarrassment belong to the abuser, not the abused, not the abused, and open up to strangers. And um, and then I describe some of the stuff he did to me. It took me many years to shake off the shame, embarrassment, concern for my own safety if I reported, as well as bad theological beliefs about reporting crimes, and the family members who worked so hard to control the narrative of Andrew's abuse. That's why I waited as long as I did. I contacted the sheriff's department the same day I felt I was ready to handle all the blowback of reporting. Today, I'm going to discuss the impact the abuse has had on my health, education, career, finances, family relationships, and self-worth and dignity. Health. Health issues began during the time of the abuse. There was a significant period of time when I was so stressed I would choke on everything I ate. My diet was reduced to liquids. 
During the time Andy, Andrew was actively abusing me, and for a while after it ended, I experienced constant vaginal pain. I also had routine urinary tract infections. The physical and psychological stress I experienced lowered my immune function, so I got sick frequently. By high school, the ongoing distress of having to live in the same home with the person who abused me resulted in severe stomach issues and food intolerances. The list of foods I could eat without experiencing intense discomfort was reduced to about five items, and this continued for several years. By sophomore year of college, I was taking over 60 prescribed pills a day to control stomach issues, fatigue, and pain throughout my entire body. A few weeks before the end of the first semester of my junior year, I wound up in the emergency room with a plethora of symptoms. I had to leave school by the end of my junior year because my health and full body pain were so bad I couldn't function effectively as a student. Over the next three years, I saw over 30 doctors and specialists in four states to try to figure out what was happening to my body. I was clinically diagnosed with lupus, fibromyalgia, celiac disease, and Renaud's disease. I was on so many medications that made me so sick and out of it, there are whole portions of those years I can't even remember. I didn't respond to any of the treatments, so I kept looking for answers. Finally, after approximately 15 years of medical issues, a team of doctors here in Chicago was able to determine what was actually wrong with me and causing my symptoms. They diagnosed me with severe PTSD due to child sexual abuse by my brother and said I had probably had severe PTSD from the time the abuse started, hence my worsening symptoms since childhood. It turns out I didn't actually have lupus, fibromyalgia, celiac disease, and Renaud's disease, but my body was reacting as if I did as a result of severe physical distress caused by the PTSD. I went through exposure therapy for three months. It was absolutely awful, but the net result was that every single physical symptom I experienced went away by the time I completed the treatment. Though the physical symptoms are gone, I continue to battle the long-term effects of all the medication I was on for so many years. This includes a corrective surgery I had to have about three months ago, the third surgery I've had for the same issue. By the way, that count went up to seven by the time it was done. I'm still on supplements to restore my body chemistry after it was destroyed by the medications. According to my most recent tests, I still have several years to go before things level out. As you can see, the abuse has negatively impacted my health from the time it started and continues today. Education. As I mentioned, I had to leave school early the first semester of my junior year of college. This resulted in missing final exams completely, then having to make up all of my assignments, exams, and presentations the following semester on top of my normal course load, and in addition to handling all my medical issues. That second semester of junior year, I had so many doctor's appointments, some of which required travel to another state, that I missed classes, had difficulty staying on top of my homework, and my GPA dropped from highest honors to grades like C's and D's. All of this led me to leave school until I could get my health under control and be a fully functional student again. I mentioned before that I had to leave school for three years. Instead of graduating college at 21, which I would have due to graduating from high school a year early, it took me over seven years to complete my bachelor's degree. Had I not had all the health issues caused by Andrew abusing me, I could have been done with my graduate studies by the time I ended up finishing college and been in the first year of my career. Career. Instead of beginning a fulfilling career four or five years ago, which was the expectation based upon how ambitious and driven I was prior to all my health issues, I am just now at the age of 30 beginning a career. I am a second lieutenant in the Air Force, but I could have been a captain right now had I not faced so many setbacks specific to the abuse. First, I faced delays every step of the way through my Air Force recruitment process, including missing several selection boards for which I was otherwise eligible because I needed waivers for having had PTSD that had to be routed all the way to the Surgeon General. 
After I was selected to be an officer, my physical and psychological screening for pilot selection was again significantly delayed due to needing more waivers because of having PTSD in my past. Also, I will have to have routine psychological evaluations for the rest of my flying career due to my history of PTSD. Today, I am an officer in the world's greatest Air Force, and I am a pilot trainee. The ability to serve my country in this capacity is the greatest honor of my life. However, I would have been in this position about five years ago had I not had to overcome the significant barriers caused by Andrew's abuse. Finances. In addition to career setbacks, I don't even know how to begin to explain the impact the abuse has had on my finances. A few years ago, I sat down with all my medical statements, student loan statements, which I had to take out because I was too sick to work enough hours to cover my education expenses, and personal loans I had to take out to afford medication and treatment, and an average income calculator for the state in which I lived throughout the time I was sick. The amount of money I lost due to medical bills, student loan interest, being unable to work for a significant period of time, and being unable to make 401k contributions or compete for higher paying jobs added up to hundreds of thousands of dollars lost due to the abuse. I mentioned I would have been a captain by now. The pay grade difference between the rank I am and the rank I could have been in at this time is tens of thousands of dollars a year. Additionally, I will always be about five years behind my peers in terms of retirement age and pension eligibility. Everything I just talked to you about are the tangible, measurable impacts. Now I want to tell you about the more personal, intangible impacts the abuse has had on my life. Family relationships. I think the simplest way to tell you the impact the abuse has had on my family relationships is that I don't have any anymore. When I reported Andrew, I lost my entire family, not just my parents and seven siblings, but my huge extended family, over 30 people, also sided with Andrew. I know that at least my mother and sister Andrea personally contacted my college friends and roommates, lied to them that something had happened to me, and they needed these individuals to help them help me by describing everything I could remember about any details I disclosed regarding the abuse. They were attempting to find people from my past who were willing to write statements or testify against me. Needless to say, that created quite a mess for me to clean up when I started hearing from old friends who wanted to know why, what on earth was going on and why my family would reach out to them in such a way. Andrew's actions not only harmed me, but also created a dynamic in which I am the black sheep of the family because I took a stand against sexual assault, refused to continue to hide Andrew's crimes, and forced everyone to acknowledge what Andrew did to me. I have had to cope not only with rape, but also with a family that supports and protects a child rapist instead of his victim. Self-worth and dignity. I've spent a lifetime trying to find a way to explain what it's like to be sexually assaulted to people who haven't experienced it. I still don't have sufficient words and phrases to describe it. Sex assault strips you of your dignity. You have to work so hard to get it back. It strips you of your confidence. You couldn't protect yourself. It makes it hard to enjoy life because you're always wondering when the next bad thing is going to happen. It makes it hard to imagine a future for yourself because you're so wrapped up in trying to survive. I could go on forever and it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface of what it's like to be raped. The bottom line is that what Andrew did to me was the single most negatively impactful thing that has ever happened to me. It was so bad I wanted to be dead. I wasn't even 10 and I wanted to kill myself. Killing myself was the only thing I could think of that would make it stop forever. There are so many studies out there about the long-term effects of childhood sexual assault, developmental issues, depression, trust issues, neurological issues, and so much more. I don't think I've even been able to identify all the ways what Andrew did to me hurt and changed me. 
I've had to learn that I'm valuable, not some damaged waste of human life. I've had to learn to be kind to myself and ignore the things I've been told. Like my mother, who said you must have liked it or you wouldn't have waited so long to say something. Or my sisters, who said, oh, Amanda, it wasn't that bad. Sexual assault leaves you in a deep, dark hole. It takes years and years of effort, heartache, tears, and therapy to climb your way out. People say he was a teenager, and that somehow makes what he did less horrible and less criminal. Yes, he was in his late teens, but he knew what he was doing was deeply wrong. He threatened my life. He nearly killed me. He raped me hundreds of times. He destroyed my entire childhood, my teenage years, and a good portion of my early adulthood. As an adult, he told me he didn't mean it when my parents forced him to apologize. He said he was just sorry he got caught. Andrew has always minimized what he did to me, and so have my parents. The three of them have always controlled the narrative of Andrew's crimes, and that narrative has always stated that what he did wasn't that bad, that he was so young, and that the impact of his crimes on my life were minimal. However, I've lived through the implications of his crimes, and they nearly ended my life. Sometimes I'm shocked that I'm still alive because of how badly I wanted to make it all end as a child. Also, he wasn't that young. He was in his late teens, and he was absolutely old enough to be held accountable for his actions. When people see pictures of the two of us from that time, they think Andrew is my father based on how much larger his body mass was than mine and how much older than me he looked. I was a child. He was nearly an adult and certainly of an age to know right from wrong and make good and decent choices. I do not agree with the plea deal in which this case has resulted. I think it is a slap on the wrist to a person who is a threat to children, and I think it is an insult to me as the person who was pinned down and raped hundreds of times. However, I do not, and I will not, live my life in the shadow of what he did. Instead, I will honorably serve my country and exemplify my service's core values of integrity, service, and excellence. I can look in the mirror and like and respect the person I see there, something neither Andrew nor my parents will ever truly be able to experience. What he did to me could have ruined my life, but it has not. I came out of the house in which I was raised, beaten, and raped, unscathed, because I have not let anything they did to me stop me. It took an enormous amount of extra effort, but I reclaimed my life, my health, and my future. I live my life with a positive and hopeful attitude, and I have never reacted to what he did by making any choices I regret. I am stronger, braver, and wiser for what I have lived through, and I value everything I accomplish in my life because I know how hard I have had to work to achieve it. I have surrounded myself with a family of choice that loves me unconditionally, roots for me, and supports me as I chase down the life Andrew's actions nearly denied me. This case is not concluding the right way. I have paid an incredible, irreclaimable price for Andrew's actions. He is facing a minor inconvenience comparatively. The outcome staggers my mind. I am not the sort of person who allows injustice and difficulty to stop me, so I will continue to do my part as a member of society and the military to live ethically and promote justice. Perhaps other survivors of sexual assault will have consistently better outcomes in the future. And he stood there while I read that, just a couple feet away from me, white and shaking, and I stood ramrod straight basically at the position of attention i think i snapped to attention accidentally when they swore me in for my statement (laughs) and i'm pretty sure i marched up there and then back to my seat i bet my ex and my dad made fun of me lovingly (laughs) afterward (laughs) 
That was very good. I know you shouldn't have had to do that, but and I don't think I've actually heard all of that. I know I've heard parts of that before. Yeah. It's very powerful. Thanks. After I read that, the judge thanked me and said something to the effect of not agreeing with the outcome either. Um, circling back to what you said, Kyle, if he overturned it, Andy's lawyers would have appealed it to Kimberly Fox and she would have started a loop of sentencing and appeals. So the judge was kind of stuck because the state's attorney had already decided on the outcome she wanted for the case. Now, I don't agree with that. And I think the judge should have sentenced Andy anyways and let him get a taste of prison while waiting for an appeal. Mm -hmm. But everyone, unfortunately, just played their little part that day. Yeah. And Kimberly Fox's number three the woman who cried openly through my preliminary impact statement sent me an email. She sent me an email later that day, basically apologizing for how the case turned out. And my response back to her was pretty spicy. I'm yeah. sure it was warranted. It was. And the last time I saw most of my biological family members, they were in the lobby of the courthouse hugging and crying because Andy got away with it. And next month, that will be six years ago. Wow. That's intense. And it's crazy that the justice system failed so horribly there. And that all came down to a politics, yeah. not justice. Not justice and accountability and doing the right thing for survivors and the right thing for society and the right thing for his kids yeah. who are growing up in a home with the child rapist. I'd do it again in a heartbeat, though, even how it turned out like it was the right thing to do. And I mean, if he if he ever gets reported for anything else ever again, like he's going away. If if you're listening to this and you are also one of his victims, please get in touch and let me know how I can support you. He's I, I think he's a malicious predator. Yeah. I So I am my teaching in my, like, I do so much work around sexual assault. And this might surprise some people um, because I am a survivor of sexual assault, but I divide offenders into stupid and malicious. So I think you can rehabilitate stupid. Here's an example of stupid. Let's say um, this actually happens to, happened to someone I know. She went out for drinks with a coworker. She got blackout drunk, woke up to him having sex with her. She was like, stop. And he immediately stopped. Okay. Should he have been having sex with a blackout drunk person? No. Is that sexual assault? Yes. I would call him stupid mm -hmm. and someone who can be rehabilitated because at the very least he stopped. Malicious, on the other hand, I don't think you rehabilitate. I don't think you can rehabilitate malicious. I think you put malicious in prison forever to mm -hmm. protect society. And I think my my brother falls strongly into the category of malicious. Definitely, like I, I don't think there's any any doubt there that I mean that just went on for too long, and there's too much. It was so calculated, and then just also his decisions in adulthood and the continued manipulation, right? And the threats, like it's yeah. not it's not stupid if you're. You're doing something and then like threatening harm to not say it. It's like you clearly you don't yeah. you don't threaten someone to be quiet because it's okay. 
It's yeah. you, you very specifically know it's not okay. And you're just trying to quiet them. Well, and the fact that that the threats continued when I was an adult, mm-hmm. you know, we, we talked about when I told my ex-husband while we were dating, right? And how Andy went after me and Noah. I don't know that we... I yeah. I think we have. Well, if, if we didn't, let us know in the comments and we'll, we'll tell that story in the future. But yeah, he went after me and Noah with threats. So did Rick. Wow. Yeah. It's the, the whole thing is just insane from beginning to end. And there's a lot that's played part in it. You've got politics and you've got weird religious cult things that are in there and crazy family dynamics and like the whole thing is just a train wreck of horrible decisions and bad ideology. Yeah. And corruption. Yep. I wrote the first draft of the book a couple months later, like I was really, I really struggled for months after the case concluded that way. I think a turning point in my work with survivors and educating society on healthy and helpful response, um, a lot of it stems from that whole experience and just realizing how ignorant so many people are. And I mean, it's a tough thing. Who wants to spend their time learning about sexual assault mm-hmm. when you could be, you know, picking daisies? But it happens. It happens way too much. It doesn't just happen in cults. Does it happen more in environments like cults? Absolutely, yes. They are, those environments are primed for predators and for hiding things and covering them up. But it happens outside of cults too. And I think. I think people can do better and I think we must do better to educate ourselves and, and to choose to pull our heads out of the sand and do the right thing and support survivors and participate in accountability and participate in justice. And I mean, that's, that's been a driving force in my life for 17 years now. And I don't see it stopping anytime soon, probably ever. This, but this experience was very formative for me. I mean, it, it didn't end the right way, but I got to stand up there like powerful and strong a couple feet away from my rapist and watch him just shriveled and shaking and pale. And it, it really was a turning point as well from, I guess, just a healing perspective of like, okay, mister, you have tried to control me my entire life. My earliest memories are you manipulating and controlling me. Who's more powerful now? Mm -hmm. So I definitely came out on top in that situation. And I don't, I don't need my bio family back. Like, I don't think they're very good people. I don't, I mean, I'm being gentle. I think they're terrible people, so I don't need them back. And I don't miss them. I miss the idea of them sometimes, but I don't miss them. I don't want them. And I'm grateful for that because it was hard. And me, you know, crying under my desk after getting some of the messages. And, you know, my some of my younger siblings said the dumbest stuff after the case concluded. Like, 
my youngest brother said I must have been lying or Andy would have gone to prison and you know, just other naive stuff. But yeah, it was, it was very hard for a long time. And I'm really glad I'm through the phase and can now just sort of relax into and celebrate the fact that I escaped not just the cult, but those people and their toxicity and their harmful ideology. I I can't even imagine how hard all of that was. Can't even pretend to understand that. But you have taken all of that and manifested it into something very meaningful and powerful. And you continue to do that with your work. Thanks. I think this is a good segue into what we're going to do next. Yeah. Because what we're going to do next, everybody saw. Yeah. It was literally broadcasted on national television television and, Mm -hmm. and, I don't know, maybe glorified. I don't even know if that's the right word, but like it was highly visible. Yeah. So what we're going to do next is we're going to run through the shiny, happy people documentary. So this is a documentary that recently came out, or at least recently is of the time we're recording this um, a couple months ago, I think. Uh, about the Duggar family, the yeah. 19 kids or 20 kids. kids and, and counting, yeah, 17. I don't, it changed. As I kept having more kids, it changed the name. But They were in the cult. The yeah. Duggars were in the cult. And <laughs> I think now have kind of like taken over. I think Jim Bob is kind of like the new Bill yeah. since Bill had to step down. So, so. what we're going to do is Amanda and I are going to watch the episodes and – then kind of recap what we picked up on and what we saw in there. And then her view of the things that were happening there and what she saw that was alarming or similar. Similar. There's a lot. There's a lot of nuance to what you see in the documentary, which the documentary shiny, happy people is kind of a taking a behind the scenes look at the, 19 kids and counting show or the Duggar family themselves. So we're going to have, I think there's four episodes to yeah. that. So we're going to break it up into one episode. I like think one recap per episode. One yeah. recap so per there'll episode. Be four of our episodes about the documentary. So feel free to watch the show, the documentary. I forget it's on, Prime, it's on Prime or Netflix. It's on one of the major streaming uh, platforms. So that's what's coming up next. And we're, we've started a little database of questions y'all have submitted. Cause I think after our review of shiny, happy people, we're going to do an episode of Q and a. So if you have questions, make sure you get them to us. Um, leave us a review, a yep. comment, a rating. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Send us your questions. If you've got them. Yeah, send us your questions. There's, there's a way on the website, coltileftbehind.com. You can go on there and I think it's under the contact page. Yeah. You can either leave us a voice memo if you want to do that. Um, or you can just send us an email with the questions through the website and we will address those in that episode. And we're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
So if you don't follow us there, we post extra stuff. I post pictures. We might start posting excerpts from my journals and <laughs> stuff like that about the cult. So make sure you find us on social media and stay in touch with us that way. Stay tuned for the Shiny Happy People series, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Cult I Left Behind. Until next time, don't join a cult. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe, and we will catch you on the next episode.